Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we ask that in the proclamation of your word, as it is enacted, read, and proclaimed, that it's your word that we hear for our lives, and hearing believe, and believing obey. Amen. Today's sermon is part two of an unofficial sermon series. I say it is unofficial because I had no idea that Elizabeth's sermon last week was going to dovetail so nicely with the passage that I was working on. Elizabeth's sermon was on forgiveness, or better said, she talked about the human side of forgiving, having to forgive over and over again because to live is to wrong and to be wronged. How many times must I forgive? Jesus has asked. Seven times? No, seven times 70. Keep at it because we're never going to get this living business right. This past week, I talked to Jeff Luckett about this passage and he quoted Stephen Wright who said, when I was in school, the teachers told me that practice makes perfect. And then they told me nobody's perfect. So I quit practicing. (laughs) And he's right. To practice in order to be perfect is a project that is doomed to fail. But practicing forgiveness, now that's a project with potential to keep a life from degrading into scorekeeping, grievances, resentments, and petty grudges. Now again, this is the human side of forgiveness. Today we deal with the flip side, the divine side of forgiveness. Have a listen and listen for the word of God. One day while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem were sitting nearby, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just then some man came carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down on the stretcher through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and Pharisees began to question, Who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? When Jesus perceived their questioning, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he stood up before them, 
took what he had been lying on and went to his home, glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we've seen some incredible things today. The word of the Lord. I mentioned Martha Delaney and concerns. The family has given me permission to give a report in this sermon on how Martha is doing. As some of you know, Martha suffered a stroke last month that left her partially paralyzed and unable to speak. For this to have happened to someone in the early 30s is quite shocking and upsetting. Her mom and Delaney immediately flew to Denver to be with Martha as she received intensive treatment at Craig Hospital, fortunately one of the world's leading institutions in dealing with neurorehabilitation. Anne has texted me almost daily, and I've been able to follow Martha's remarkable recovery in real time. Now, it's far from over. She has a long way to go. She still needs prayers. However, her recovery has dramatically exceeded expectations. At first, she could not speak, but now is not only conversational, but has her sense of humor back. Her physical recovery is a month ahead of where her specialist thought she would be. Anne was kind enough to send me videos of her walking smoothly with a walker and pulling weights with both arms. Credit has to go to the specialist and rehab personnel of Craig Hospital, Martha's young age and good attitude, and the support of her family. Still, even with that being said, and it all needs to be said, even with modern medicine, family support, and Martha's attitude and youth in mind, it still feels miraculous, this amazing recovery. Thank God. And with Martha's remarkable recovery in mind, it's hard not to see the healing, the actual healing of paralysis as the main thing to celebrate in our passage. I mean, we heard that Jesus declared the man's sins to be forgiven and then have an argument with others about it. But a paralyzed guy gets up and walks out the door with his stretcher. Is that what is so amazing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story? I don't think so. Now, that doesn't stop me from celebrating a paralytic getting up, taking a stretcher, and walking out the door. And it encourages a celebration of the video of Martha walking. Jesus calls the healing of the paralytic a sign of something greater. But it's a wonderful sign, don't you think? A recovery like this? So we'll celebrate it. But I'll tell you what I thought was remarkable about this passage when I was a kid. It was those pals tearing a hole in the roof through the towels and lowering their paralyzed friend through it. We all need pals like that sometimes, don't we? We all need advocates like that. As I said, one of the reasons Martha is doing so well is that she has an amazing advocate in her mother who is a nurse and in other family members like Mary Ellison in Denver and Morgan Morris right here in Roanoke who do what they can to help the medical staff and Martha do what they need to do, each to do their part, who are the listeners, the doers, the interpreters, the encouragers, the facilitators. Blessed are those advocates who do not let obstacles like a roof get in the way to care of someone receiving care, but find a way to get attention to the one who needs it. 
Blessed are the advocates who attend doctor appointments with loved ones to ask questions and help interpret what is said. Blessed are advocates who listen to the doctors, but also help the doctors listen to what the patient is trying to say. Blessed are the advocates who go on the tour of retirement or care facilities on behalf of another to help find the next best home. Blessed are advocates who, on behalf of the one needing care, will help fill out all those confusing forms and listen to that terrible music while on hold. Blessed are advocates, and this passage encourages us to bless them. But I don't think advocacy is the most amazing part of this passage. I think we get close to what is most amazing when we let the scribes and Pharisees have their say, even though they're mad when they say it. What amazes them is that Jesus speaks as if he has the authority to forgive the man of his sinfulness. Now, the passage says of his sins, but I think it's more to the point to say of his sinfulness. I say that because despite how they are sometimes described, Pharisees in Jesus' day are not all ungracious, legalistic prudes. I'm sure there were some who were that way. I'm sure Jesus had to deal with some that are that way. We certainly have to deal with some who are that way these days. But Pharisees can be gracious people. They have their ways of dealing with the human side of forgiveness. Maybe not many of them are likely to agree with Jesus on forgiving 70 times 7. They want to argue with him about that, perhaps. They're concerned for the well-being of the community. They're concerned for the status of one's heart. I may need to forgive others so that I don't stay stuck, even if the other does. But the Pharisees are business people who care about rules and business ethics. When you have a family to feed, sometimes hugging it out isn't enough. They also want to protect the safety and health of the community. And they say some wrongs are worse than others, and they have rules about such things, policies and processes to deal with levels of severity. Gossiping about a friend is different from stealing the savings of the utterly, after all. When someone wrecks a family, incites a riot, or is careless so as to call someone to lose a limb or a life, you can't just say, ah, oh, forget about it. Victims' rights are real. Enabling bad behavior is a thing. And Pharisees would say that there are wrongs that are so wrong, the one responsible should be shunned, may be put through some steps of restoration, may be excommunicated for a while, may be executed, though you need Roman help to do that. On the human side of forgiveness, I'm saying, they and Jesus would have a lot to discuss and debate, just as we would have a lot to discuss and debate when it comes to what deserves a fine and what deserves jail time, whether incarceration should be punitive or restorative or whether the death penalty is justified. Is it a different means of claiming God's authority? Is it even effective in lowering crime? Or on interpersonal, non-legal side of things, what does it mean to have and enforce boundaries? And how can one forgive when the other will not admit the wrong? Lots to talk about and think about. The human side of forgiveness is hard, it's complicated, because life is hard and complicated. But what Jesus says, 
What that guy just said, that's different. He forgives sinfulness. For me, that's the only way to make sense of what Jesus says. After all, he doesn't know all that this man has done, so how can he forgive all that this man has done? And, 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 he says, go and sin no more. How is that even possible unless the guy drops dead as soon as he walks through the door? To live is to mess up. We know the guy's going to mess up again. Perfection is not possible. Right, Stephen Wright? So why practice it? Unless Jesus is not speaking about specific actions or thoughts, but is speaking of this final act of healing that only God can provide. This healing, the healing of our very selves, so that we are no longer judged by the accumulation of our successes or failures, but declared as worthy simply because we are forgiven and loved by God. That's a different healing altogether. It's not something I can give you. It's not something you can give me. So, by what authority do you give it, Jesus? Only God can grant such a healing. Now, this is going to frustrate the scribes and Pharisees, but I'm not going to engage in the argument they now want to have. As important as the argument is, I don't demean it. But my sermon today is about proclaiming the gospel of Christ, not defending it. Making the case for or against Jesus being God among us is a great discussion to have, a discussion for another day. In fact, there's even room for those who do not believe in the divinity of Jesus to hear the good news of what Jesus says. For the doubter, Jesus speaks to the possibility, and for the believer, Jesus speaks to the news that God Whoever is before, beneath, and beyond us, whoever created this world that we live in, that God is not sitting there as a judge in a game called life, keeping score and calculating if we're just good enough or just not bad enough to be worthy of the final healing that Jesus declares for the paralytic. David Zoll and Jonathan Linball helped me think about this. I heard them both on Mockingbird podcasts. They helped me see that the paralytic is a sign, as Jesus calls it, is a clarifying example of what it means to be human. Limbaugh says, and I'm paraphrasing, that most of us spend our lives auditioning. We are writing a biography while carrying the burden of being loved. Most of us live with this knowledge of this gap between who we are and who we think we ought to be. And we are concerned, as I said two Sundays ago, about being enough. Saul directly addresses the paralytic. And I have to be careful here because the Bible deals with the paralytic as a sign. Physical paralysis in life is some level of disability, and many disabilities can be dealt with and not be barriers to a good and full life, especially in this modern age of medicine and rehab. But as this paralysis is presented in the Bible in a much harsher age, it's presented as a sign or a symbol of a moral condition, 
of no longer being able to live under the illusion that we can fix it or we can make it right, that we can make up for all the wrongs or fix what is broken. Saul says it presents the kind of clarity that sometimes is found in situations in prison or at the end of life. Prison and hospice chaplains speak of situations where an individual is simply in a moment robbed of the comfort of denial. In a moment, there comes the realization that they have to look at the stone-cold reality that they cannot undo or redo that which they have done to cause harm. In prison, some are trapped not only by walls, but by the knowledge that they can never undo the harm their crimes have caused. At the end of life, even people who have lived lives that we would say are commendable, people who live lives that we say are great worth, they have these moments where suddenly they feel like, they're, like they are the accumulation of their regret. I've seen it. It's astounded me. People that just, that were great, that were loving, having these doubts at the end. And these chaplains in the prison and these chaplains in hospice situations say that sometimes they have the pleasure of seeing this moment where suddenly they get it. They get that their wrongs are not what define them. What defines them is that they are loved by God. I have a hospice chaplain back there nodding with me. Saul looks at the paralytic and guesses that whether he has lived a commendable life or a contemptible one, it doesn't matter. He's come to define himself for whatever reason by his accumulated wrongs. He has put together his own portfolio of missed opportunities, of regret over those things he wishes he had said or done or not said or did not do. And there's nothing he can do about it. And regret, maybe shame, has become his identity. And Jesus heals his identity. Jesus looks at him and says, in effect, good or bad, bad or good. You are not what you have done. You are who you are in the loving eyes of God. Your identity is healed. At the end, there is no help for anyone except from God. The Pharisees got that at least. You don't have to take your sins with you. You're forgiven. Now go live that way. I've come to the end of my sermon having spoken of clarifying moments at the end of health and at the end of life that is true about all of life. We need a final healing because we can't possibly repair all the wrongs of life. And we all need to hear that. I mean, I have those things, those moments, those memories that just linger and hang above there. And I wish I could go back and make them go away. And yet they are not what should define me. Whatever they are for you, they should not define you either. I offer a final illustration that comes at the beginning of life. It's the baptism of Paige Gibson McGee. Her baptism this morning declares the same truth even before Paige has had much of an opportunity to commit the wrongs or create the harm that will one day weigh on her as regret and if allowed to go too far, will weigh on her as shame. Page, we declare in the baptism. Page, Jesus speaks with the voice of God in telling you that even now, even now, this early, smiling as you were, cute as all get out, 
You are forgiven. You're forgiven. Now go live your life. Live out an identity not defined by the accumulation of failure or success, but go and live as a child of God always, finally loved by God, because that's who you are. And we don't want Paige to forget it. And that's why her parents, that's why this church need to keep reminding her of the truth of the healing that only God can provide. Your very identity is forgiven. Now live. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.